Hello and welcome to Slate's Serial Spoiler Special. I'm Slate's senior editor, Gabriel Roth. Joining me from our D.C. studio is Slate's words correspondent, Katie Waldman. Hi, Katie. Hey, Gabe. We're coming to you this week with a very special bonus mini-episode, which is in response to the very special bonus mini-episodes that Serial itself posted last week, Um, a series of dispatches from Sarah Koenig uh, huddled in the closet of a hotel room in Baltimore where she has been attending Adnan Syed's court hearing as he petitions the court for a new trial. Um, This is a return to the characters of Serial Season 1 and reporting on these important new developments in Syed's case. Katie, in a piece for Slate, you described these mini episodes uh, of Serial Return to Season 1 as running on fumes, specifically on the fumes of listener loyalty and curiosity from Season 1. The new episodes play to exactly none of Serial's strengths. Harsh words there from someone who I know was a passionate fan of Serial Season 1 and cared about it a lot. I know, that sounds so brutal when you say it, say it out loud, but um, I stand by it. I do think that the mini-updates come off as kind of chaotic and ragged and scattered, and instead of having a very carefully crafted um, experience uh, with you know a beautiful script and lots of colorful anecdotes and sort of perfectly chosen details, you have um, someone who is uh, reporting hastily and haphazardly and in a qu- kind of stream-of-consciousness fashion with Dana Chivas, who is her producer, asking sort of prodding or leading questions to get her to remember things. It just, um, you don't feel like you're in the hands of professionals as much. And I do understand why the structure of the podcast uh, necessitates that. They don't have all the time, but it's definitely, uh, it feels like a shadow of what once was. Do you think that sort of failure of craft, um, is that inevitable if they're trying to do daily updates from these hearings or, or is it a failure of execution? I think probably both. One of the structural problems that leapt out at me is that both Dana and Sarah, who are sort of the two hosts who talk back and forth and through their conversation, the information is unspooled. Um, the problem is that in the actual serial seasons, you have one host who's the storyteller and the, the artist kind of, and then you have the expert witness or the person with a, with a intimate connection to the events. And here you just have two hosts basically. And so there's no sort of personal connection. There's no added expertise. It just the whole balance feels kind of glib. We got to hear a bit more of uh, Dana Chivas in, in these episodes, right? In in the original season one of Serial, she was mostly um, a sort of foil for Sarah Koenig, but here she's in the role of the interviewer. Um, what, what, what do you think of her, and are you, are you happy to be hearing more about her? I mean, she was sort of, uh, she was sort of a cipher in season one, and I'm not sure that there was, like, a deep hunger to uh, flesh her out more. But now, you know she is emerging as a character and her character is sort of exactly the same as Sarah Koenig, except she knows more about the telephone records. So again, I would like a little bit more contrast between the two central figures in the conversation. Although I can see that, you know, Dana is not a legal expert. We heard a lot about those telephone records, right? 
Were you, mm. as, as as someone who paid very, very close attention to Serial Season 1 the first time, but who I assume has not gone back and re-listened to all of those episodes, were, were you able to track those very detailed discussions of, of the cell phone evidence and the facts cover sheet and, and all of these sort of deep dives into all that material? So I think they did a B-plus job of refreshing our memory here. There were definitely moments in the updates where I thought they took for granted that we would remember uh, various intricacies of the case. And especially, I was surprised that uh, Sarah didn't go back and explain what it would mean if the cell phone could be definitively located in Leakin Park. Um, you know, would that mean that Adnan was necessarily there? Uh, not sure. Jay said that that is when uh, he and Adnan were burying Heyman Lee's body, but Adnan said that he lent his cell phone to Jay, and so it's possible that just Jay was there with the cell phone or some other person had the cell phone. There are lots of alibis that we were not reminded of, uh, and I was sort of, I found myself wondering as we dove into the nitty-gritty of which phone calls could be accurate indicators of where the phone was, you know, what would that mean? Um, and I think that maybe they lost an opportunity to step back a little bit. I have to say, when they got into the the cell phone records and, and things like that, I, I mostly found myself sort of remembering in general that those had played an important role, um, but not being able to track what any of these new developments meant in the context of, uh, of something that I haven't listened to for a year. It strikes me that they may have been responding to the existence of this sort of serial internet fan obsessive community, you know, that this was an update for people who not only were deeply immersed in the case at the time that season one was airing, but who are, have continued to be deeply immersed in the case and have gone on researching new information and, and pursuing new leads. And that uh, in the, you know, in the context of that world, then these updates are useful, although I suppose those people can get information about these Baltimore hearings uh, from other sources as well. So there may have been a bit of right. audi audience confusion there. Um, our producer, Sam, is is signaling. Um, Sam, what do you think? Well, that, that I thought was a really fascinating thing throughout these episodes is that Sarah Koenig was very much putting herself in the position that we all occupied throughout the entirety of season one, which is these facts are coming to light in real time, and I am working feverishly to try to construct a narrative out of them, but without the benefit of the reams of research and time to look at the narrative more holistically that the serial production team ostensibly had. And that comes down even as far as, as Katie was pointing out in our last episode, you know, she sees Asia McLean walk in and has this response like she's seeing a celebrity for the first time. Or she marvels at the fact that she couldn't see the expression on Adnan's face. Like, it would have been so helpful to see the expression on his face. It's this much more immediate, almost emotional response to the story. And it was odd to feel, in a way, like, at least at the beginning, she was experiencing this story in exactly the same way as we were. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I feel like one of the things that's going on there is that we you, you, you sort of run into the way in which a trial is not 
a story. It's not organized like a story. That um, it contains conflict and drama, but it all, it's also just a sort of procession of events that that have not yet been organized properly to to be a story. And so reporting on it day by day doesn't have that same um, that narrative hook or that appeal. Yeah, and it's a it's also sort of a case of your idols have feet of clay, like you see Sarah Koenig without all of, as you said, the reins of research. And it's kind of disappointing, even though it's understandable. But I was also just struck, you you said that, you know, she reacts more emotionally to the facts than perhaps she did in season one. But at the same time, we're deprived of the immediate emotional reaction. Sarah, of course, can't actually play audio clips from the hearings. And so we get all of this secondhand and you have a lot of Sarah saying, and then I was like, and then she was like, and, uh, you know, and she has like vocalizations and she'll say, oh, no, um, but it's not particularly uh, articulate, I guess. Um, it's understandable and it's conversational, but, you know, she's describing the testimony of the defense's superstar witness, Dave Irwin, who was a prosecutor and also a defense attorney. And um, he basically gets on the stand and says, Asia McLean is a slam dunk alibi witness. And he tells what Sarah describes as a parable when he was a prosecutor and he underestimated sort of the magical power of the alibi witness. And he says ever since he lost that case because he didn't get it, um, he's been looking for Asia McLean. And it, it's a powerful anecdote, but I was just thinking how much more moving and powerful it would be if we could hear him say that, like hear his voice saying that. And it, to me, it just sort of uh, encapsulated the weaknesses of this particular update format. One thing that the updates definitely do is give you a very clear sense of how produced serial itself is, how much what we're hearing, although it, it is often made to sound spontaneous, that spontaneity is the result of, of hours of careful, patient labor by Sarah Koenig and Dana Chivas and the rest of the production team. And that when you have Sarah Koenig on the telephone reporting on what she saw at the hearing today, even though presumably that those phone calls have been edited as well to some degree, and you realize, oh, actually, Sarah Koenig talks just like we do. Actually, Sarah Koenig is a regular person, and, and part of what you're hearing in Serial is uh, the, the conversational podcast equivalent of a big-budget Hollywood movie. Putting aside whether the episodes worked or not, there was some new information about the story from season one for us to chew on, and I would like to do some chewing on that. So, all the the question of the cover sheet of the facts, which may or may not disqualify all of the testimony about incoming calls from Syed's trial, which we, we mentioned before, and, and which, again, I, I found a little difficult to parse. Um, what do you, how does that change the story? Where are we now? So it seems in Sarah's words like it's going to be a brawl between experts. Um, apparently there was a disclaimer on the original phone evidence saying that uh, incoming calls were not accurate relayers of geographical location. 
And apparently the person who testified in the first trial in 2000 did not see the disclaimer and is now recanting his testimony, if that's the correct word to use, um, withdrawing his testimony or saying that he wouldn't stand by it. Um, on the other hand, the prosecution, or I guess the state, has brought in another expert to say that actually in this specific case, those records would have been credible pieces of evidence and that that d disclaimer was covering situations that did not actually apply to Avon's case. I have to say, it would have been helpful to me if I had had that summary while I was listening to these mini-episodes. I feel like I, I would have followed the thread a lot better. Um, but so is the bottom line that we don't know where it's going to go, whether that evidence from the trial is going to get tossed out or not? I believe so, yes. This is the, that's the trouble with trials, is that it's going to come down to presumably some decision by a judge, possibly on some arcane or technical question and possibly on some whim. Um, and, and the whole outcome of the, this evidentiary question is going to come down to that, and maybe of the retrial hearing is going to come down to that. And that's why trials make for weird stories, because random stuff happens. Now, the most dramatic issue in these hearings is the broader question of Christina Gutierrez, the, the defense attorney in Syed's original trial, who went through some kind of mysterious mental and physical decline. What did we learn about that? So Adnan's lawyers got in touch with some of Christina Gutierrez's colleagues who said, yes, at that point, uh, she was in a lot of pain. She was handing off assignments. Um, and in general, she seemed to be losing her sort of mythic uh, defense mojo. And so that seems like a pretty persuasive case. And then they also brought in a witness who sort of specializes in general how to defend someone best practices. And he said that an alibi witness is a hole in one is the best possible defense. And given Asia McLean's particular story and her willingness to to search for uh, footage, for instance, and to involve other people in Adnan's life, um, she seemed very credible and would have been a game changer. And there's really no reason that Adnan's lawyer should not have reached out to her or investigated her. And so that seems like a, a strong case that um, Syed's team is making there, that, that his counsel was not competent in the original trial. Right. And if they can prove that um, his lawyer was not doing her job, then he has a much stronger uh, case for post-conviction relief, which basically says, you know, you've already been convicted, you've lost your appeal, and yet this trial was so mishandled that we are going to um, shave off your sentence or reverse your sentence. I think Sam has a thought. Yes. One other thing I was curious to get your guys' thoughts on is, as I recall, there was a pretty extended sequence at the beginning of Serial Season 1, it might even have been in the first episode, where we hear this extended rumination from Sarah Koenig on the very slippery nature of memory and how, as Season 1 of Serial unfolds, that is the central question that it is going to address. What is the ability of this handful of teenagers to remember the events of this one particular afternoon when one of their friends disappeared? Every day this year, I've tried to figure out the alibi of a 17-year-old boy. Before I get into why I've been doing this, I just want to point out something I'd never really thought about before I started working on this story. And that is, it's really hard to account for your time in a detailed way, I mean. How'd you get to work last Wednesday, for instance? Drive? Walk? Bike? Was it raining? Are you sure? 
Did you go to any stores that day? If so, what did you buy? Who did you talk to? The entire day, name every person you talked to. It's hard. Now imagine you have to account for a day that happened six weeks back, because that's a situation in the story I'm working on, in which a bunch of teenagers had to recall a day six weeks earlier. And it was 1999, so they had to do it without the benefit of texts or Facebook or Instagram. Just for a lark, I asked some teenagers to try it. Do you remember what you did on that Friday? No. Not not at all. I can't remember it. And yet then the rest of season one of Serial unfolds, and it's not actually really about memory so much as it is about character. It's about Adnan's character. It's about the character of other players in the story. It's about the legal system. And the issue of memory kind of recedes and becomes less of a theme. And yet here in these mini episodes, as we revisit season one, memory and Asia McLean's memory specifically becomes the main debate that it seems like we're having. Uh, the cell phone records, yes. The Juwan Gordon interview, yes. Um, all of these other things. But the, the main question seems to be, is Asia's memory of the exact date that she wrote this letter, the exact time that she became aware of the details of Adnan's case, is that something that can be trusted? And is that enough to ultimately grant Adnan a new trial? So it almost seems like this theme that Koenig abandoned in her initial story is now rearing its head again, almost as though it didn't get enough attention the first time around. Hmm. I don't know. I do think, um, yes, memory has become really important, but it's also kind of a proxy for motive because uh, perhaps Asia McLean is misremembering what, you know, uh, ascribing particular events to the wrong day, or perhaps she is too eager to help Adnan and is offering to lie for him, and it's not actually faulty memory at all. It's a more malicious or uh, suspect intention. So so I agree with you that memory is, is now back on the radar screen, but I don't think it is the sole uh, preoccupation of these updates. How much of all of this do you think is happening because of Serial itself? Is it uh, How is it uh, playing a part in these hearings, and how is it playing a part in, in the fact that the hearings are taking place at all? I mean, that's a fascinating question, right? Because uh, Serial got the Innocence Project involved. It started this groundswell of support. And obviously, it brought a lot of visibility to the case. And I have to believe that similar kind of hasty or shoddy uh, <laughs> justice practices have happened and are happening all around us every day. Um, so... As someone who may be biased because my window into this trial was serial, I have to believe that it played a pretty significant role. And that's even evidenced in the fact that serial is invoked repeatedly, according to Sarah, um, at the hearing. But I don't know. What, is that your impression as well? It is. Yeah. I think you, you had it right when you say Serial sort of started the ball rolling, got the Innocence Project involved and in, in various other entities that, that are now keeping the case open, um, that Serial was maybe more the instigator of all of that stuff than the direct cause uh, of these hearings. Uh, but still, it must be quite a thing if you're Sarah Koenig to be sitting there watching this hearing happen, know that it might not be happening without the work that you've done and hear your own work invoked now and become part of the legal record, part of the, the legal process in the, you know, the question of whether this guy spends his life in prison or not. Must be quite a thing. Right. And there was actually an article by Monica Hess uh, that described Sarah's kind of queenly uh, seat in 
in the hearing, she wasn't just, you know, back in the in the pews in the back. Uh, she was sitting directly behind Adnan. She had kind of a pride of place and people were sort of mobbing her um, and asking for selfies. And, you know, she has become an intrinsic character in this story to the extent that it's a story. It's interesting that that, that bit of scene setting doesn't appear in these serial updates themselves. Um, I, 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 it's an interesting decision that they made. Yeah, she's an every woman uh, to us, but and I think actually in that choice, they have sacrificed a bit of necessary authority. And I would actually prefer to look up to my host and feel more of a distance between her expertise and mine in this situation. Yeah, it also, you know, all of us only know about this case thanks to Serial and and having Serial be part of the discussion, but then also pretending that she's a sort of invisible reportorial presence in the courtroom, um, there's a there's a disconnect there and it makes the you're leaving out something that would make the scene a little more fleshed out or more credible, I think. All right, that's it for our bonus episode about Serial's bonus episodes. We'll be back next week following the release of Episode 7 of Serial's second season. In the meantime, keep your emails and voice memos coming to SerialSpoilerSpecial at gmail.com. The Slate Serial Spoiler Special is produced by Sam Dingman. We're a production of Slate's Panoply Network. Laura Mayer is our managing producer, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Find us on iTunes and find more great Panoply shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. <laughs>